Our sermon this morning is found in Luke chapter number six. I'm going to begin reading around verse 27. Also, uh, would love to see you at starting point after church today. It's an opportunity for you to hear more about our church, but also for us to hear more about your story and to help you get more connected to our church body. Amen. Luke chapter number six, verse number 27 declares, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who strikes, who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it that is it uh, is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who whom you expect to receive. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Say it again. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Uh, this morning, we want to share very simply from the subject title, Loving Like the Lord. We want to talk about loving like the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for the blessing that you give us uh, to be in your presence. We thank you for the family um, that you've called us to be. We thank you for allowing us, God, to continue, God, to be able to open up your word and God, as we open up your word, we pray in Jesus' name that you would speak clearly to us, that you would help us, God, to see exactly how we fit in the text. God, help us to see how you're causing, calling us to love those who are not always lovable. God, help us to see this as a tangible way to show the gospel to the world. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that in life, we oftentimes find ourselves imitating what we admire the most. I'm going to say that again. Oftentimes in life, we find ourselves imitating what we admire the most. For instance, if you were to go to a playground of a school, and if you were to put a ball into the pants of any, any kid, it won't take long for you to see who they admire because they will begin to imitate who they admire. You put a mic in the hand of a singer, and as they begin to sing, as they begin to let those, notes, uh, let those notes ring forth, you will quickly see who they admire. Uh, let the beat drop in the right location. And I believe your dance moves will show you who you admire the most. 
That is true in our lives naturally, but that is also true in our lives spiritually. And that is why Ephesians chapter number five, verse one and two simply declare, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians five has the word therefore and therefore connects us to what has been said in the previous chapters. In Ephesians, Paul has has already told us about what God has done for us. He's told us that God is that God loves us, that God has chosen us, that God has redeemed us, that God has adopted us, that God has sealed us, that God has secured our salvation. And because God has done all these things, he says we have a new life in Christ. And the new life that we have in Christ offers us a divine invitation to be imitators of God. In Ephesians, we have four chapters full of truth that tell us why we should admire Christ. But in chapter number five, we have a challenge. We have an opportunity to commit ourselves to imitating Christ. That is what disciples are called to do. We are called to imitate Jesus, not in my own power, but in the power of of the Holy Spirit, not based upon my will, but based upon God's will being done. So as we start this morning, we must clearly say to love like the Lord is something that is impossible apart from Christ. To show the kind of love that the text is communicating is absolutely impossible for you to do apart from Christ. I want to say very clearly that when Jesus speaks about this, this kind of love, this is not a means of entry into the Christian life. Uh, The way you love others does not earn your way into heaven. I think we must say that over and over again. This is not a means to enter the Christian life, but this is the fruit that is produced in the Christian life that is surrendered to Christ. This is not the means of entry, but this is the fruit of a life That is surrendered to Jesus. That is essentially what the passage is addressing this morning. A life that is surrendered to Jesus. A life that is fully committed to Jesus. Now, before we jump into verse 27, we need to remember what we considered last Sunday in verses uh, in verses in verse 26. Uh, We highlighted that one of the key characteristics of the Christian life is that Christian discipleship. Uh, allows us to be different from the world. I want to say it very clearly. Uh, As a disciple of Jesus, your life should be different. Not perfect, but different. The world should see a difference in your life because of Christ. You cannot tell me that the creator of the world The sovereign Lord of the universe is in a relationship in your life, and your life be the same. It's not possible. And for us as Christians, we need to understand that discipleship allows for my life to be different. Uh, I truly believe when unbelievers or those who are not mature in their faith read Luke 6, they usually conclude that followers of Christ are losers, This should not come as a surprise to us because the world values different things than God's word. There is a different set of values that we have as Christians versus what the world has. 
as we read the word, we are challenged to make a decision where we will find our values. Will our values come from God's word or will our values come from an ungodly world? Uh, Last week, we specifically focused on how the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we found that there is a biblical blessing, catch this, for those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are sad, and those who are hated. Based upon the text, those are the people who are blessed. The text also tells us uh, that there is a woe to those who are rich, those who are well-fed, those who are happy, and those who are popular. Catch this, we started the sermon by asking the question, what do you want to be? Do you want to be hungry? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be sad? Do you want to be hated? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be well-fed? But we ended the sermon, more importantly, by speaking about in your life personally, what do you value more? Do you value being poor or rich? Poor, catch this, meaning you understand how needy you are for God. Being poor is not about how much money you have in the bank. Being poor is that you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. Rich in the context doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have in your 401k or how much property you have. Rich in the context is speaking about people who have forgotten about God because they are more focused on the gifts. When we talked about do you value being hungry or well-fed, hungry meaning do you desire for God to work more in your life? On the other side, being well-fed is a picture of those who are lazy and those who have become comfortable and stagnant in their faith. Do you want to be happy or sad? Do you want to be hated or well-liked? As growing believers, we must do the hard work to identify the things, catch this, that we value most in our lives. Now, in doing that, we must also remember that this is not a list or a ladder that we are to climb. This is not a list of things that you are to do to earn your way to salvation. These things are a mirror that we look into. They are not steps to take, but these are things that we should consider and identify to see if we are being impacted by Christ. Jesus asked them to do more than simply look back to the day that they prayed a little prayer. It's important. I want you to catch this. This is very important that we look back to the cross. We should be able to look back to the cross. We should be able to look back to the moment in our lives we placed our faith in Christ, but we are not to look back to the point to where we are consumed with the past and lose sight of what God wants to presently do in my life. I don't want to live my life with a spiritual uh, view where I'm always looking in the rearview mirror. To the point that I, that I have no idea about how God wants to do something new to help improve my spiritual health. The tone of the text is God is causing us to ask the question, how are you, catch this, currently doing spiritually? Not when did you f- first start coming to church. Not when did you get baptized. But what is God currently doing in your life? Last week, um, there was an emphasis on how God wants to presently work in your life. But catch this. This week, the emphasis is how God wants to work through your life. That is a Christian paradigm that we never get over, that God wants to work in you, and that in the working in you will always precede God working through you. 
Our passage this morning is not asking us to simply do what is right. The passage is challenging us. It's inviting us to do what is good. Uh, There are times in my life where I do what is right with the wrong motives, and that's not good. You can do what is right for the wrong reasons and it not be good, but the text is calling us to do what is good because God has a different standard. God's standard for love is a higher standard. I want you to hear me clearly. This is another reason why disciples are different because a a disciple has a different standard. And specifically, the passage is telling us that God's standard of love is different than the world's standard of love. God's standard of love is totally different than what we consider love to be. And when we look at the text, we need to see that God is giving us an invitation to love in a way that the world will never understand. First, the text uh, challenges us with how the Lord defines what love is. Verse 27 says again, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Uh, in the text, there are, uh, in the Bible, there are several words that we, that we just translate love. In the Greek language, Uh, Jesus is not simply using uh, the Greek word storge, which means a natural affection for love. Jesus is not uh, using the word eros, which is a romantic love. In the text, Jesus is not even simply using the word philia, which is a, a love kind of relation, a love kind of friendship. In the text, Jesus demands something called agape love. Agape is a deliberate love that is rooted in the will. Agape love is a love by choice. Agape is a deep, continuous, unconditional, and growing, ever-renewing activity that is led by the Holy Spirit. When you have this agape love, it is because the Holy Spirit is stirring something in your life. Agape love says, I will choose love. I will choose to love this person because God's grace has been given to me, so I will extend God's grace to them. I want you to hear this very clearly. Love is what the text commands for us. This is not a suggestion. In the text, this is, much, this is as much a command as not to murder or not to cheat on your wife or not to steal or abuse. This is a command from God. What makes it hard is the command is not just reserved for those who are lovable. The command is given for those who don't even deserve it. The motive of love must never be the reward, but the motive of love is an expression of the character of God. The motive of love allows us to be imitators of God. Now, there's one thing to sing about love. It's one thing to talk about love. It's one thing to even study love. But it's something totally different to actually live out love. Not just brotherly love, not just uh, erotic love, but unconditional love for all people, even when they don't deserve it. As we apply the passage, I believe that it's very important for me to say that Jesus, catch this, is not saying that love is blind. Agape is not blind love. Jesus is not saying you are able to love people because you are blind to their offenses. Jesus is not saying you are able to love people because you cannot see the wrong that they have done. Jesus is not saying you can love them because you don't really know who they really are. Hear me. Jesus is saying 
in their cursing at you, in their fussing at you, in them hurting you, in them attacking you, Jesus is saying they are called to still receive love from you. Uh, One commentator puts it this way. He says, this love may see nothing attractive in the one loved, nor is this love called out by anything that is attractive that is going to flow from them after you give it. Agape love is present even when the object is unworthy. Agape love is the agape love seeks the highest possible good for the one being loved, regardless of what they have done, regardless of what they are currently doing, and regardless of what they one day might do. That's God's standard. To love people by doing them the highest good possible even when they don't deserve it. That's how God defines love. So first, the, address, the, the text addresses what love is, but secondly, the passage uh, describes whom we should love. Verse 32 says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Uh, To make sure we get the full context, go with me quickly to Matthew chapter number 5. I want to read verses uh, 43 and 44 of the same same sermon. This is a little bit fuller, a little bit more uh, context for us. Jesus in Matthew chapter number 5 verse 43 simply says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said uh, or you have accepted that it's okay to hate those who hate you. Like, that, that, that's how T-Settles is built, right? Apart from Christ, if you hate me, I'm going to hate you. If you get me, I'm going to get you back better. Like, that's how I'm built. I know that's not right. Pray for me. But that's how I am naturally. In the text, Jesus is saying we are called to love people, even those who don't love us back. We are called to love people, even when they hate us. We want to love them who love us. And we want to hate those who hate us. Our attitude is, if you do good to me, I'm going to do good to you. But the minute you cross me, the minute you step over the line, I'm going to get you. Jesus says, that's not the kind of love that I'm calling you to. Some might be wondering what Jesus is really communicating when he says, you have heard it said. Uh, Some commentators have even suggested that in this text, uh, Jesus is fixing a mistake that took place in the Old Testament. I want to clarify that statement. Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. Jesus is not um, correcting the Old Testament, but Jesus is clarifying a misunderstanding from the Old Testament. Go with me quickly. To Luke 19. This is super important. Luke 19. I mean, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 verses, uh, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. It's on the screen. In context, Jesus is referring to this passage when he speaks on the Sermon on the Mount. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Say it again. You should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Remember, of your own people. I can't say much about this because I don't have time, but as I was reading the passage, it was impossible for me to ignore 
the idea of holding a grudge. I mean, how many of us, even this morning, woke up thinking about a grudge? Like, how often do we replay mistakes and hindrances from the past or offenses from the past where people have done things to us and we hold the grudge? I don't have time to jump in that, but I've got, I had to just mention that because that's something I dealt with as I was studying. When you look at the text, though, Jesus is bringing up a very important point because the people had misunderstood, misunderstood the statement of your own people from Leviticus 19.18. To them, catch this, the idea was, I am called to love, but that love is only reserved for my own people. Jesus does not correct the Old Testament. Jesus does not contradict the Old Testament. Jesus is clarifying who is in that group of your own people. The people misinterpreted the idea of your own people. They allowed themselves to believe that they could determine who was in that group of their own people. Jesus calls us to be be in in a position where we are not limiting the group of your own people. The people in the text were operating with this mindset. If you are one of my own people, then I will love you. But if I determine that you are not one of my own people, then I have a right based upon the Bible to hate you. Now, I got to just step in it this morning and just say, does that not sound familiar? You know, as your pastor, I got to recognize that there's certain topics that we're more passionate about than others. And because we're passionate about those topics, it's easy for us to see those topics in every passage of Scripture. And we've got to be careful of that because when we do that, that's called eisegesis. That's called injecting our thoughts into the text. And we, are, we don't want to read our biases into the text or our preferences into the text. And instead of eisegesis, we're called to exegesis. We're called to pull the truth from the text. So what I'm about to say is something that I'm very passionate about. But what I'm about to say, please do not think that I'm reading into the text. When I see what Jesus says, when I see how Jesus confronts the people, when I see how the people were limiting their love to their own people, it reminded me of racism. Is that not the heart of racism? I mean, let's be real. Is that not the heart of prejudice to limit love to your own people? To withhold love to those who are not in the group of your own people. That's why we got to talk about race and racism because race and racism is a gospel issue. This is not a political issue. This is not a worldly issue. This is a biblical issue. We cannot limit our love based upon our own people. If you do not think that racism is still... um, an issue in our country, then I want to challenge you to come and have a conversation with me. We live in a country that is still divided based upon race. We live in a country that still allows people to limit their love to just their own people. And when I see that present, it breaks my heart because I know it breaks the heart of God. When I, when I look in this room and I see people who are, who are different and I see people who are not traditionally from the same own people group, it blesses me because I know it blesses the heart of God. As believers, we are called to confront 
any kind of racism because the scriptures call us to confront uh, loving people who are not like our own people. We can do that with race. We can do that with class. We can do that with gender. Uh, I love it because agape causes us to confront people with the truth of not just excluding your love to your own people and not just excluding love to people who are lovable. I love this text because it causes us to ask the question, when people see our church, when people see your life personally, do they see you loving people? Or do they simply see you loving your own people, the people who look like you, the people who think like you, the people who work like you, the people who live like you? Is your love limited to your own people? I got to ask myself that question. Like when people see our church, what would they say about our church? Would they say that, that those folks will love you if you vote a, vote, vote a certain way? Uh, they'll love you if you have uh, certain political affiliations. Will they love you if you have uh, certain candidates you, you vote for? Or will they love you because they are committed to seeking the best based upon agape? As a church, I really am not concerned about what the world will say about us. What I'm more concerned about is what God will say about us. And my hope and prayer is that God would say that we are loving like he's loving. I hope that God would say we are guilty of loving people who are not lovable. I hope that God would say we are guilty of loving people who are not like us, who don't think like us, who don't act like us, who don't live like us. Because here is the truth. Whom are we to love? We are to love all people. So first, the Lord defines what is love. Secondly, uh, the Lord describes whom we should love. And then thirdly, the Lord declares why we should love. Verse 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful, gives us the why. The why is because we want to be like dad. We want to be like our Father in heaven. That is how we imitate him. We imitate him by lo showing love like him. Once again, we can't take this as a description, uh, for a, as a prescription for moral behavior. Uh, we don't believe that we should love our enemies as a way to enter our way into heaven, but we are to love our enemies, and we are to love those who are unlovable because that is how we show we are different than the world. When we, when we hear this idea of loving those who are unlovable, it's an issue of unbelief. We just believe that we can't do that. We just believe that that is impossible. And on some level, it's true. It is impossible until your mind is renewed by God's word. It is impossible until you are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. Jesus is calling us to not give just to those who give and not love to those who love and not just uh, lend to those who can give back. But Jesus is saying, I want you to be so radical in your love. I want you to be so radical in how you care for others. I want you to be so radical in how you are seeking the best for others that the world will see a present day picture of my love. It's encouraging to me because that is how we will see change in this world. Like so many times we think that change is going to come uh, from a political candidate. We think change is going to come 
if we have a certain person, the president, uh, change is going to come if we have a certain person who's going to vote, vote for certain things. I vote. There's nothing wrong with that. But I believe in my heart that a lot of things that we're looking for Washington and politics to change, the church is called to change. I believe that there are things that are spiritual, and since we are in a spiritual battle, there are things that natural forces cannot, cannot deal with. We are in a spiritual fight, and if you think that your natural weapons are going to win a spiritual battle, you are foolishly mistaken. It's kind of like me going into a natural fight, and you got a gun, and I got my fist. You're going to win that fight. Like, you are not going to win the battle in this world by fighting the way the world fights, but we got to fight the way God has called us to fight, and the scriptures are giving us an invitation to do it in a way that shows the world love. Now, before we talk about what God wants to do externally, first we need to talk about what God wants to do internally. Because a lot of times we want change to happen outside before we have change that visits us on the inside. I know this sounds secular, but it's true. But the quote, change begins with me, needs to be considered. The change I want to see needs to begin with me. That means that before I expect my church to love well or my pastor to love well or my leaders to love well, I want to love well. Before I expect our country to love well, we want our church to love well. Before I expect others to do something, I want to experience that in my life as well. It's so easy for us to get into this place in our lives where we want to critique others like I want to talk about your marriage, but I don't want to talk about my marriage. I want to talk about your parenting, but I want to talk about my parents. I don't want to talk about your laziness, but I want to talk about my laziness. It's, it's easy for us to be in this position where we want to point the finger at others, but the text is calling us to be delivered from looking at others before we first look at ourselves. That's true love. True love says, I want God to visit me first. I want the internal change to happen with me first. And in that happening with me first, then I want that to happen in other people. It, it, it's the truth. And this is something that the Lord continues to remind me of. I will never lead people past where I am. If I want our church to be at a certain place, I've got to lead and model that. If I want my kids to be a certain way, I've got to lead and model that. If I want the marriages of our church to be a certain way, I've got to lead and model that. It's not based upon me but I will never lead past where I am. And in your life personally, everyone here has a sphere of influence, and you will never lead people in your life past where you are. And that is why it's important for all of us to be in a position to where we are committed to continuously pursuing Christ because we are called to lead others into a deeper relationship with Christ. I love the passage because it gives us just another reason why disciples are different. Disciples are different because we have a different Lord. Disciples are different because we don't simply have a Savior on the cross. We have a Lord on the throne of our lives. And since we have a Lord who's on the throne of our lives, we have one who calls the shots. We have one who gives the decrees. We have one who gives the statues. And we got to live to, we got to get to this place in our life where we are understanding that because he is the Lord, him being pleased is more important than me being pleased. Discipleship, once again, makes me different. Not better, but different. 
Not smarter, but different. Why? Because I have a different Savior and a different Lord. Once again, Jesus is calling us to be countercultural. He's calling us to do things in such a way where the world will see a difference. And I said this last week, and I want to say it again. Many times we don't see the impact that we want to see in the world is because we've been more impacted by the world. Many times we don't see the influence in our culture because we are too influenced by the culture of our world. When you look at the church, I'm speaking generously, gen- generally here, when we look at the church, people in the church get, the, get divorced for the same reasons as people outside of the church. People in the church file lawsuits for the same reasons that people do outside the church. People in the church use the same language as people outside the church. People in the church watch the same, watch the same shows, go to the same websites, respond the same way as people outside of the church. And then we want to be surprised that the world is not impacted by those of us who are inside the church. Whatever, once again, whatever you feed is going to grow in your life. On campus, I use a very simple illustration. I say, hey, if you have a, if you have a brown dog and a gray dog, and all week you feed the brown dog, but you starve the gray dog, and they fight, which one is going to win? The one you feed. This is not a plug for more Bible study. But if you are in the world all week, watching, my, my pastor would say it this way, watching that television all week, Ungodly conversations all week. And you think that you're going to come in here and get a little, a little spiritual snack. And when them two dogs fight, you're surprised that you get whipped. It's the, it's the truth. We don't have spiritual success because we are not willing to feed the right things. And I get it. You got a job. You got kids. You got a lot going on. But in life, we got to understand that we are in a spiritual battle, and for us to have success, we got to do things to feed ourselves spiritually. I want you to catch this. The text invites us to not just do more, but the text invites us to apply more. It's not just the, 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 the accumulation of more information, but it is the application and the transformation that God desires for us in our lives. I close with this. When you look at the text, the text progresses with, by, by reminding us that discipleship has an impact on your life. Following Jesus has an impact on your life. That impact first begins vertically. Changes your heart, changes your mindset, changes what you value. But as you are changed vertically, then you have a change horizontally. God first works in you, and then God begins to work greater things through you. Chris, you can come on up. We're done today. As we get ready to close, we have three very simple points on application, and I'll be out your way today. When you think about the text, um, I really do believe uh, that we are encouraged to identify what you admire. It is a fact. What you admire, you will imitate. Whatever you admire is what you're going to imitate. A lot of times, Christian marriages look so ungodly and so worldly 
because the ones who are in the marriage are admiring things in the world. It is a natural default. The things that you admire the most are the things that you want to imitate. And I want to encourage you to be an imitator of God. I want to encourage you to find value in God's word. Secondly, after we identify what we admire, secondly, we need to identify who you consider to be your own people. I'll be honest. There was a time in my life where I had no trust for white people. Just being real. My parents had been done wrong. I had not had people care for me well. I had people do things wrong. And I was naturally defensive to white people. But I'm so glad that I've lived long enough and that I'm in a relationship with people who don't look like me. Well, now, I don't see people through the lens of just them being black or white. I know people who don't look like me, who care for me, who love me, who pray for me. Like, when I see people, I know some racist white folks, just like you know some racist black folks. But thanks be to God, I know some loving white folks who care for me, who serve me, who are for me, which lets me know that it's not about the color of your skin. It's your character. So I'm not so concerned about, well, is this person black or white or yellow or brown? I'm more concerned with, is this person uh, willing to have character like Christ? I can be honest about that. That I've grown to understand that my people are not just black people, but my people are all people. And I hope that you understand that all of us have a natural tendency to just focus on your own people. And as believers, the gospel causes us to break forth from just settling for our own group of people. And lastly, after we identify who you admire and after you identify who you consider, lastly, you got to identify why you're living. It goes back to our purpose. I hope this is a broken record to our church. Our purpose is to know God and to make him known. Why do we love people? Because I know God's love. And I want that love to be known. Why do I forgive people? Because I know God's love. And I want that love to be known. So I'm not going tit for tat. I'm not holding others, um, other things over people's heads. I am showing grace to others because God has shown grace to me. It's what God is calling us to. And that is the invitation that he's given us today.